We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Let's pray. Father, your word is for all times, and we bless you and thank you that it's our gift this night. So, Lord, may these moments be powerful not just in your sight, but in our sight. So, Lord, speak to us. Our ears and hearts are open. May this time be fruitful for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. If you have been kind of aware of what's been going on in our city this week, it's a heavy moment, I think. My, my week began in a conference for city reaching. Mission America Coalition came to town. There were 300 folks involved in various cities across the nation to reach their city for Christ, and not just to do that, but to transform it. Some very passionate, charismatic, Presbyterian, Anglican, Episcopalian, Catholic, Methodist, Baptist types all gathered in a room for one purpose of talking about how can we transform our cities. And basically four streams, a stream of evangelism, uh, marketplace ministries, presence-based ministry, and community development. And all just kind of one goal of making these cities more shalomic in nature. So it was just, I was in, it was so cool to be around these folks. And then Friday, I tutored at Restoration in Miss Jackson's classroom. And then I knew, I knew kind of the news that had said that Jesse Jackson was coming to town. As, I'm, as we're in the classroom working, I see all the activity around Fairfield, and I go out after the morning session in the class, and I went out, and sure enough, on the steps of City Hall, he wasn't there, but all the other people were. And uh, there was just a heaviness in the air. I mean, it was just unbelievable. So my week went from this really, you know, mountaintop experience to just the, the uh, wherever you stand on the issues is just heavy presence of evil kind of stuff. It wasn't an emotional roller coaster because it just, it was the drop in a matter of five days. So I think, I think this is a, a heavy time in our, in our city's uh, history and time and in our communities as well. And I, and I think it's interesting that this is the text that we have this night because it speaks to these kinds of issues. But I wanted to, to begin tonight and just in a bit of review, if you weren't here last night or last Sunday, if you haven't listened to the podcast or you forgot what we did last week, I thought maybe in, a, in 30 seconds I would do Aubrey's 40-minute sermon for you. Um, from Luke 9, 37 to 50, um, he presented us with four scenes, and these four scenes are overriding throughout the book of Luke and our journey with the disciples to Jerusalem with Jesus. The first scene was that the disciples were faithless and twisted, and that something was wrong with them. And Jesus actually lumped the disciples in with the greater culture and described them as faithless. The second scene was that the disciples are prideful and disobedient, and they couldn't grasp the future of Jesus. And fear was instilled in them, and their own understanding of what was going on actually concealed the truth. They were blinded from the truth by their own pride and disobedience. The third scene, the, descri- the disciples were actually described as enemies of Jesus because they failed to embody the heart of Jesus' message. And you have to remember that he brought the child beside him. He put the child in the place of honor and said, See, this is what the kingdom is like. It's like this little child. And the fourth scene was that of sin and pride becoming the agenda that drove the disciples. Remember they said, there's a healing taking place, but he's not one of us. And often our own agendas are confused with the agenda of God. Now, this, grand, this bigger narrative begins in Luke chapter 9 and ends 
As Jill read in Luke 13, 9, there's just one long conversation that Luke presents to us. And in this conversation, there's a, a heightened sense of the crisis. And it's first reported by Jesus' own prediction. It's a representation of God's wisdom. And it's actually the hostile treatment that should be expected of God's messengers. And so it closes out at the end of this with Jesus' dialogue with the Pharisees and the scribes. And Luke observes that these religious leaders at this time had adopted a new tactic. They weren't just going to follow Jesus around and kind of harass him. They were going to stalk him. And this is why Jesus begins to instruct the disciples that there's something coming that your behavior must react to, and that is persecution. And so Jesus begins to raise the connection between the present-day persecution and the final crisis, the end of His journey. And so we find in this section that Jesus looks backwards, and He reminds His disciples that one cannot find their security in their possessions. It's pleased God to give the kingdom to the disciples. And they're liberated from the peril of possessions. And they're enabled to re reorder their lives in order to care for the needs of others. Secondly, Luke portrays Jesus as a servant of the table. And that's in direct contrast to one of violence. It's a picture of Jesus serving in faithfulness and humility. And thirdly, Luke talks about an urgency of response. That is... Faith and fruit. Now these are all reminders that Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem. And it's on this road that people are challenged to orient themselves around the priorities of the kingdom of God. Throughout this discourse, Luke is concerned with the re-socialization of those who have joined or will join this band of followers. In this reorientation of life, Luke calls this repentance. And it really is a theological transformation. It's a change in one's understanding in the nature of God and of God's purposes. Now this theological transformation has a relationship of mutual dependence with a further transformation. And this one is in the arena of social practices, especially persecution, possessions, and position. Like those three Ps, Persecution, possessions, and position. How the disciples and the followers of Jesus are going to relate socially with their status and in society. Now, one other thing about this discourse. There's a constant encouragement from Jesus about faith. And often He says, O ye of little faith. His entire message is based on the possibility that some will see with eyes of faith what is otherwise hidden from view. Jesus can see these things happening. He can see evidences of God's generosity and care in the world all around Him. And He's hopeful that other people will see it. This is an alternate approach to the rest of life as we would live it. What's obvious to Him is obscure to others. But in Luke's narrative, it's hope for mankind that people will come to faith in the presence of God's restoring act in Jesus. That His followers have very little hope is a hopeful sign, actually, that they will begin to attend to His message 
and they will reorient their lives. And what must, apart from faith, seem like something going in a reckless direction. So let's talk about Luke 13, 1 through 9. There's two scenes in this passage. The first scene is one of individual disaster, verses 1 through 5. The audience is now called upon to change their hearts and lives so that they might live fruitful lives and escape judgment. This is a continuous conversation from Jesus. The passage begins at that very time, which is a connection point. So Jesus didn't start a new conversation or break his pattern. He used this actually as an interruption of a beachhead to launch further admonitions concerning the kingdom of God. So it's a continuous conversation. Now you could look at these verses and look at Jesus as either being one of two people, pro-Roman or pro-revolutionary. These aren't, these aren't accurate interpretations of the passage. A little explanation about Pilate. You know, I think if you took the four Gospels from the Bible, we would probably still all agree that Pilate was a very bad person. Um, history bears it out. Josephus is a Jewish scholar, and he tells all about Pilate. So we have other history other than our scriptures that bear out the, the badness of Pilate. Pilate came into town. The Jewish pilgrims from Galilee were worshiping in a service. They were offering sacrifices. And Pilate and his henchmen, they cut them all down. So that's the phrase, mixing the blood of the Galileans with the um, um, worship sacrifices being offered there. So there's a battle that takes place in the sanctuary. It'd be like if somebody came in tonight and there was massive violence here. Um, but the question is, why is, it, why is it here in this passage? What's the meaning of it? We're going to answer that in a, in a second. The second reference is the, is the collapse at the Tower of Siloam, and it killed 18 people. Um, this was some people standing up, and, and there was just a collapse. And um, it's just kind of one of those things that it just, it just happened. It's a natural disaster. But it does ask the question, did God judge, uh, did God judge these folks for their excessive sin? Is God giving back to people what they actually deserve? It's kind of some of these, these questions under the surface. Uh, N.T. Wright says that uh, these events are tied um, to judgment. And it's a reminder that, and, and Jesus is arguing here, that judgment will come on all if there's not repentance. The second scene, verses 6 through 9, this is one of a national judgment. So we had the first five verses individual. The second, uh, verses 6 through 9 is a national judgment. Now, throughout the garden, uh, there's the tree. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, there's the tree in the garden, and this represents Israel, God's people, God's chosen people and nation. Augustine said that this tree actually represented the human race. And the Lord visited this tree through the prophets and the patriarchs, the law, and now through the gospel. So it's a recurring theme throughout Scripture. And even though the tree should have been cut down, it was not. Here it is. The merciful one is interceding through the merciful one. And he wanted to show how merciful he was. And so he stood up to himself with a plea for mercy. Um, let us leave it this year too. Let us give it one more year. And Alan, you know this. Let us dig a ditch around it and fertilize it. And they fertilized it with manure, the scripture says. And here in this context, this is a sign of humility. And if we fertilize it and wait some more, maybe it will bear fruit. Let's give it one more shot. 
I think as we look at the Scriptures, oftentimes we're very quick to think that the Israel nation is 100% bad. There's no good. There's no righteousness anywhere. This, in, in verses 6 through 9, this image, scene 2, it does describe the unfruitful state of the nation of Israel. And Luke indicates that the time for repentance is limited. In this scene, we see God's patience. God's patience, not to be confused with God's grace. So God is patient. He's going to give this nation a short time before exercising judgment. But the shortness of time indicates the importance of making a decision quickly before it is too late. The nation has failed by and large to respond, and the story continues. There are some in Israel responding. There's some righteous present. We can find those. But Luke says, on the whole, judgment's coming. We know that judgment came in A.D. 70. In Luke 21, 5-7, Jesus predicts that judgment will come and the nation will fall. But it's not permanent. Later in chapter 11 of Romans, Paul tells us that God will bring the broken branches back into the plant. So judgment comes, but it's not final. Back to scene one. You've got to remember what's going on here. There's rampant persecution and occupation by an oppressive enemy in the place where Jesus is actually headed. It's like if we were to say, okay, y'all, let's pick up and move to Kabul, Afghanistan. We would know what's waiting us there, right? Or Peshawar, Pakistan, on the frontier where there's no army and no police, just the Taliban. We know what's waiting for us. So you can kind of put yourselves in shoes there. And so it begs the questions we would all ask, are we nuts? Are we really planning to go there? Stuff, bad stuff's going to happen. Are we, are, Robert, is are you leaving us there? Aren't you afraid of what will happen? Is this the beginning of something worse? You've got to remember that Jesus has been warning all along about disaster coming on those who refuse His message. Is this a sign that the Galileans were being punished? So this is kind of seen here of Wait a minute, this is going to get worse. Are you serious? There's also a question about, is there a worse level of sin that causes punishment and causes a certain people to suffer? You know, through these natural catastrophes, the temple massacre of the Galileans mixed with the the pool of blood that Pilate exercised upon them, is that a special act of judgment against these people? The collapse of the tower. These things just happen. But the underlying is this argument of, is this God's punishment? So Jesus responds. He recognizes this. He changes the direction of the question. The reason that such events are so tragic is that they expose our own mortality. Death exists in a fallen world. Nothing exposes our mortality more than when death comes suddenly and unexpectedly, it cuts short a lot. Cuts short a life that's that's young that has so much potential. And, and we can all think about funeral services we've been in of our peers. We're all fairly young in this room, or or family members that were young. And, and it, it 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 makes us think about our own life and our own ending of our life. But Jesus goes farther. He doesn't say this is about a question of cutting life short, but the fact that life does terminate. And then what? 
how does one prevent the end from becoming the ultimate end? So Jesus has taken a question about mortality, and he's made it a question about the possibility of eternal punishment. So he urges people to repent. Because death is coming. It's more than a loss of mortality. It's a decisive encounter with God that everyone has to deal with and to deal with our sin. So whether one is a little sinner or a big sinner or a young sinner or an old sinner, repentance is the only way to deal with that encounter. The call to repentance is a fundamental theme in the book of Luke. And Jesus has in mind that the change of direction that comes from a change of orientation after hearing God's messenger with the revelation of the Holy Spirit is necessary. Before one repents, once we're not really concerned about uh, being rightly related to God. That's really not on our radar. I think as we begin to think about that, that leads us to repentance. But with this repentance comes a change of mind, and it affects the change of our direction because our life becomes oriented in the direction in faith to God. And the Old Testament word for this is turn. In verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, there's a common word in these verses, and it's the word all. So Jesus' reply, it doesn't diminish the consequence of sin, nor that sin leads to judgment. And he rejects the theory that those who experience pain and trouble have been marked by God is more deserving of judgment than those who do not. This is a common theme we think we see in the Old Testament. This is the fundamental question, why do bad things happen to good people? But the overriding argument is that unless there is repentance, judgment will overtake anyone. Galilean, Jerusalemite, Birminghamian, however you say it, Mountain Brook, whoever. It doesn't matter. It's, it's not a respecter of persons. Scene 2, verses 6 through 9. Fig trees were often planted in vineyards because it was good for the trees and it was good for the vineyard. Did a little reading about uh, fig trees. Um, there's about 20 varieties of figs and they were one of the very earliest cultivated plants. We know in Genesis 3-7, there's a fig tree. The fig is actually the flower of the plant. You know, often there's a fruit. The flower falls off and the fruit develops. The fig is actually the flower of of the plant. And I found this interesting. The sap of the plant is a skin irritant, which begs the question, why did Adam and Eve cover themselves with fig leaves? <laughs> but also fig leaves refer to false righteousness, while the fig tree is representative of God's people. Then he told a parable. You know that Jesus used stories about culture and life to illustrate a point. Here he uses a standard figure about Israel, a vineyard or a tree garden, to discuss the nation. In the Old Testament, Micah chapter 7, verse 1, God looks for grapes and figs in the garden of the nation, but he can't find any. So by the third year, it suggested the fig tree should have fruit, but it doesn't. There's been lots of care and nurturing. It's not from neglect by the owner of the tree, but nothing and the failure to deliver fruit is costly and disappointing. So the owner commands it to be cut down. But the caretaker asks for one more year. So the owner relents and more time is given. Jesus continues in these verses in the theme of repentance, but this time it's elevated to a whole people group. He doesn't focus on how the tree came about in the vineyard 
why it was there. And there's not even a hint that the owner expected fruit from the tree. Maybe it was out of season or it was, it was uh, insufficiently uh, grown. It was immature to produce the fruit. But the focus is on the sterility of the tree, the fact that it didn't bear fruit. And that lenience has been allotted to the tree in order to give it initial, additional nutrients and time for fruit bearing. So lenience has been practiced here. In human terms, there's a possibility of change that leads to faith expressed in obedience to God's purpose. In the announcement of pending judgment, hope is expressed. The accent on the fruit bearing goes hand in hand with repentance from scene one. And Jesus is illustrating his mission right before the disciples and us. Repent and bear fruit. There is, and if you think about it in terms of a balance, there's clemency and there's eminent judgment. So we're in this Lenten journey together. The call to repentance. A couple of things. We have a choice. We have to decide. Are we going to live in obedience and repent? Remember, this call to repentance is not a suggestion. It's a command by our Lord, by our Savior. And it can't be left out of the whole of the entirety of Christianity. Here in the South and in the West, um, I think we've made it an option. I can appear on the outside to live the Christian life. I can do good works. I can, I, I, I can make it look like I'm something I'm not. Without ever repenting, I can display the characteristics of what we define Christianity, what we define Christianity to be. I can surrender my life to Christ or go through the motions without ever repenting. So I and I think we have to decide, are we going to embrace this action, this behavior, and reorient ourselves? Or are we going to leave this out and assume a personality that is not reflective of Jesus the Christ? If you read much of the message, Eugene Peterson, he calls this a cheap imitation, a trinket that can be bought at a flea market. I think also one thing that can happen in our responding to this call of repentance is that it will possibly create division. You know, as you study the disciples in Jesus' ministry, often as the announcement of the kingdom came, there was a division. Division among people and families and individuals and townspeople and classes of people. The decision to trust Jesus can cause a division, particularly when one crosses their faith or their religion. I remember in graduate school, a friend of mine was from Tehran, Iran. He was, he was, he was Mr. Muslim. I mean, five times a day, had the prayer mat in the lab. I mean, everything. Um, strict observer. But he would come to all of our church social functions. It was, and, and often would engage with the pastor in conversation. And Pastor Vince asked him one time, Javad, would you like to give your life to Christ? And he said, I would die. My family would cut me off. It wouldn't be long, I'd be dead. He knew what it was to repent. The Apostle Paul talks about leaving vain things behind. And repentance coupled with fruit for us may result in a change in friendships, a change in activity, and a change in our reputation. 
Think also what could happen in responding to this call of repentance is that our view of Jesus would change. If repentance is a change of mind that affects our change of direction and orientation, then our focus is altered. So as our understanding of the depth of grace is understood when we come to grips with the weight or magnitude of sin, that's the same thing I think that happens with Christ. Christ begins to take place of the high places in our life. So yielding our allegiance to Him and turning over our will will result in a lifestyle and behavior that allows Psalm 63, 1-8 that Jill read to us, it begins to make sense. I think without this repentance, we say, there's no way I can lay away at night and think about you, God. There's no way I can sing your praises. There's no way I can do these things. You see, repentance sets our own trajectory in the right way so that we're truly redeemed and truly restored to our Maker and Creator. Aubrey began this Lenten series with some disciplines. One of them was fasting. And he said, fasting has to be accompanied by prayer. In these passages, we learn that repentance must be accompanied with fruit. There cannot be one without the other. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on Luke, said this, Leaves will not serve crying, Lord, Lord. Blossoms will not serve beginning well and promising fair. There must be fruit. You see, profession alone does not equal possession. I think Lent is a time to consider our own mortality and our relationship with the Lord. It's a time of introspection and reflection, not just on the goodness of God, but on my own orientation and my own behaviors that are not Christ-like. Those things that are not born out of a total dependence on God. And what communal aspects in my possessing in my life that hinder a full and radical demonstration of the power of God. So here it is, the dot, dot, dot part. Our stride and our pace must be interrupted. Our stride and our pace must be interrupted. I think too often we want to add Jesus to our life, and there's no interruption. I think a lot of this is due to the fact that we've bought into a consumer brand of Christianity where there's no sacrifice. There's an emphasis on convenience. Our possessions, our position, and our posture are never altered or changed. Jesus said to come and follow, abandon it at all. That's some serious interruption. And if we desire the power of God, we must allow repentance to invade our stride. We all want good things to happen. We want the best for our children. We want to leave a legacy. C.S. Lewis said, God's love marshals us where we should want to go if we knew what we wanted. So we must come to the place where we surrender our own desires, wishes, and agendas to God's. This begins in responding to the call of repentance. Let's pray. Lord, you've called us to give ourselves to you, 
to abandon the pleasures, to abandon the selfish things. Lord, you call us to repent, to orient our minds around you, and to change our direction, to change our focus. Holy Spirit, come and invade our lives. Alter the pace with which we live our lives. So that, Lord, we have an opportunity for you to break into our lives. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.